Welcome to this week's episode of What Does Good Look Like? The podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. This is the second and final part of our conversation with Dr. Sophie Cassidy, an exercise physiologist and researcher in lifestyle and chronic disease. Let's hear Sophie explain what that actually means in normal language and what got her into this field in the first place. But be aware, it includes some pretty scary stats. I'm a researcher looking at how we can use um, lifestyle interventions and healthy lifestyle behaviours to um, treat, manage and prevent obesity and age-related chronic disease. So particularly looking at um, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease um, and heart disease. And the reason that I got into this, so I've always been fascinated with how the human body works and um, particularly how it responds to exercise and diet. And so I studied exercise physiology at Leeds University, where I was really interested in looking at how we use exercise to yeah, prevent disease. And a few statistics I remember when I was studying my undergraduate really stood out to me. For example, a third of people in England over the age of 35 are now obese. Obese, and, not just overweight, but obese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So wow. that is constantly on the increase. And it's scary because, for example, obesity is the second biggest um, cause of cancer, for example, after smoking. Um, so there's a number of different issues and problems with um, the rise and tide of, of obesity and, and overweight individuals. Um, and I, I think I started to realise that we live in an obesogenic environment. So it's actually really hard to prevent this rise in tide in obesity. See what I mean? One third. Even the term obesogenic environment sounds frightening. Like it's something around us that we can't really escape. And I guess that's kind of the point. We're living in a society that makes it easy for us to make the wrong decisions. A constant uphill battle and one that it seems we are beginning to lose. But there are other routes we can take, ones that lead to a much better place. And Sophie is one of the researchers that are uncovering these new paths for us, which is why we've asked her here on this show. And it is also why the BBC reached out to her and a colleague, Professor Mike Tronell at Newcastle University. The BBC wanted to create a programme based on their research that would show the broader public what tools we have at our disposal to win the battle against obesity and other age-related conditions. In this episode, Sophie will tell us how the BBC series How to Stay Young came about, what learnings were made from it, and give us a glimpse into the work behind the scenes. We'll also find out which tests Sophie herself recommends for finding out how well your body is aging and what changes she has made to her own life. We'll now continue the conversation, starting with a great tip on how to incorporate physical activity into your daily life in a way that is sustainable even over a longer period of time. Yeah, so I think maybe maybe one thing that's good. So we talked a lot about different things that you can do. And I think there is probably some information in here that may surprise people. But a lot of things such as just a general concept of moving more and eating better is perhaps not that surprising to a lot of people, right? Uh, but it's mm. still actually getting down to doing it in practice. And I think one of the reasons may be that people see that the benefits of these types of improvements that you make to your life is mm. more long-term benefits. But do you have any uh, thoughts on also shorter-term 
benefits, kind of the quick wins. You alluded a little bit mm. to that when we talked about people that are not moving anything and they actually start start moving mm. a little bit. That can help them improve their sort of risk profile for developing chronic diseases further down the line. But But any sort of quick wins on that? Yeah, I think there was a popular belief recently that quick um, weight loss, for example, isn't helpful because people just gain weight again. But actually, the Lancet study I, I told you about with Roy Taylor, they've actually shown that it doesn't really matter if, if you lose weight and you, you maintain that weight loss over two years, it doesn't matter whether you lose it quickly or slowly. And mm. um, so I think when it comes to physical activity, all the evidence more and more is saying something is better than nothing. So like you just alluded to, doing something in the short term is going to have benefits in the long term as well. And I think when we look at individuals, so we always try and work with the individual and we get them doing an exercise, for example, that they really enjoy. Some, well, try and get them to think about something that they will enjoy. So there's no point getting someone to undertake a circuits class, for example, if they don't enjoy it and they're not going to maintain it in the long term. You do want to get people to change their behavior in the longer term. Um, one thing that I find really helpful, and I think a lot of people um, love if they can try and fit it in their day, is actually active commuting is one thing that I think people can maintain in the long term. So that's something that you can fit into your daily schedule. Um, it doesn't have to take up too much extra time. Um, so instead of sitting on the train or the bus, as you would normally do, you can fit that physical activity in during that period so I think that's often one way that I see people make long-term gains um because they can consistently maintain that activity I think that's a really good idea uh, now I think it'd be really interesting to, to move on to um uh, the how to stay young series that you were a big part of uh, mm. how did that come about what was the what was the aim of it uh, and what did you take away from it it came about, I think the BBC saw the work that Mike and I were doing and they got in touch. They wanted to kind of, I guess, utilise the work that we'd done and, and, and show kind of in real life individuals, you know, the everyday Joe who's midlife struggling with the diet and activity. Um, how can we get them to change? Can we use body age um, as a motivator for change? So what we did was we um well 12 individuals were chosen by the bbc who had different stories different things wrong with their health so it might have been high blood pressure poor sleep um, di diabetes and um we got them into our lab and we did a number of tests on their bodies to see um how healthy they were and probably one of the biggest challenges with this um was that the bbc wanted us to come up with this kind of body age score now that's actually really difficult to do. It's difficult to get one score that's going to um, be a comprehensive measure of aging, as it were, because aging has so many different parts to it, whether it be mental, um, strength, cardiovascular. There's so many different aspects. It's very hard to just give someone an age based on a test. You know, do you know what I mean? So we we did a lot of tests on individuals and then we ended up basing the body age measure on um, cardiovascular fitness. So we did a, a, the bike test, so VO2 max test. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reason we chose that is because um, cardiovascular fitness is a good measure of how the heart and the lungs, so two big organ systems, are working together within the body. Um, but So we used that as kind of an indicator of where someone was at. 
So all of these individuals we got in the lab, we did a number of tests on them. And for example, you had someone like Tina, who was around 45 years, but actually her body age, so her fitness levels were the same as someone who was 20 years older. So we use tests that we have normal population values for. So you can compare what a normal healthy 50-year-old's fitness levels should be or grip strength or body fat. And then you can see, okay, well, where did Tina fit within that normal kind of distribution curve? Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. It's actually something we've been, we've been looking at doing as well. And I think you, mm. you made a really good point. So, so when we looked at it, we were thinking you actually need a, so you have a normalized data set and you need a body age for each of these measurements rather than one unified mm. body age, because that can also kind of drive the hierarchy of where you should be looking at starting improve mm. your fitness as well yeah um, but i think the concept I, what was interesting was mm. uh, the impact it had on the individuals when you gave them this this that's body right what, what, mm. what did you see there what kind of things did you the reactions oh it was a huge motivator i think if you've seen the program you see the emotion in the room and that was so real when people were told that you know 50 year olds was told they were actually 80, 90 in terms of their fitness levels, they, it was a huge shock. And I think what we saw is that was a really tangible, body age was a really tangible measure for people. And um, sometimes if you're told your blood glucose is high or you, your blood pressure is high, it's kind of hard to picture what that means. But if you tell someone that they're actually like an 80 year old in terms of their functional capacity, they immediately imagine their 80 year old relative um, who can't walk up the stairs or their 80 year old neighbor who's not very independent and so I think it's really they could just imagine that person before them and a huge motivator for people is they want to stay well and alive as long as possible so that they can um, appreciate their grandchildren for example that was very much linked to what we saw so people motivated during that midlife time to go actually I want to maintain my health as long as possible so I can be um, fit and well to look after great-grandchildren even. Mm. That's interesting because when you watch this program you can definitely tell that people are quite shocked when they see this information and it seems, mm. seems like they're getting motivated and and what you were doing is that they would also get some help when you looked at the more granular data to see where they needed to improve the most and they got some mm. help with that but I guess one of the questions I had was how much support did they get because this was a tv show so how much support did they yeah. get versus the normal person like was that motivation still strong enough do you think for this to be applicable to a broader mm. pool of people yeah i think you've hit on a really good point because actually it was a tv program and therefore the bbc would ring the participants every day we were very much in contact there was a lot of granular kind of information pointed directly to them um, about how they could improve their health specifically so probably not feasible when we're looking at kind of population-wide change but it does prove I mean all of the individuals reduced their body age they all did really well um, so it does prove what is possible just by changing lifestyle um, but you're right there was a lot of motivation there was a lot of help for these people um, which probably isn't feasible for most people yeah, yeah. but I, I guess that the main point maybe is that that 
that body age number in itself um, mm. was probably the strongest motivator and, and the thing that really resonated with people to want to make mm. a change. And then that granular data of what was actually driving that, that body age, yes. where they, need, they personally needed to improve, help them with what to actually do and how to improve that overall body age. Yeah, that's right. I think in, if you talk to some of the contestants, so we've we've been in touch with a couple of them still, who are doing fantastically. Um, Tina, for example, her diabetes reversed during that 12-week period. And I think, you know, they're still motivated by what they were told and the changes that they saw happen, as you can see on the programme. And, you know, taking the learnings from, from your own research and also from the programme, if yeah. assuming people had access to, to any testing that they wanted, what kind of tests do you think they they should be looking at and what kind of measures should they be taking if they want to see how they're aging? Um, so cardiorespiratory fitness is, is a very, very good measure because we know that there's just so many big studies showing that it declines with age. So we have nice normal population values for that. However, it is difficult to do a VO2 max test. You have to be in some sort of lab. It, it's not offered on the NHS, for example. So um, there are simpler tests which give an idea of um, kind of functional ability. So things like the six-minute walk test, so how far you can walk in six minutes, the sit-to-stand test, um, how many times you can stand up and sit down. Um, sorry, how quickly it it how sorry how much time it takes you to sit and stand five times. That's a good test. Um, and also the four meter test, how quickly you can walk four meters. They've all been linked to um, mortality. So the better you do, the less likely you are to die in simple terms. And um, so those tests are good. There's also grip strength. So we we know that um, grip strength is, li is linked to mortality. And as we've already talked about body fat. So they're just some of the tests. But um, I must say that in kind of the research world, there's a lot of investment, there's a lot of work going into trying to find a blood test, for example, that will measure a number of um, biomarkers in the blood to give you a body age, to give you something that predicts how long you're going to age. Um, so I think watch this space. There's going to be a lot of work in that area. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think there is a benefit as well to people taking blood tests measuring say their, their blood glucose over a long period of time or or their liver mm. value because I know you've done a lot of work in in uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver um, mm. so, so are those useful or not really yes I think did you say you'd used recently a glucose monitor to look at your kind of glucose yes, over the course used, of the uh, day freestyle yeah leader. I've tested a few yeah, I think they're fantastic. And the, the problem is obviously cost and people need to be educated about what it means when your blood glucose rises like that. But they're fantastic visual tools for people to learn um, how their body's responding and, and what's going on. And um, fatty liver disease is a, a trickier one because at the minute there's no um, clinical measure that's really accurate. So the best way to find out if you've got fatty liver is to do an MRI scan or a biopsy, both of which are very difficult and expensive to do. Mm. Um, but certainly measuring blood glucose is a very good indicator of how your liver and how your kind of metabolic systems are working. Yes. Good. And um, so I guess that, you know, we, uh, we have a couple of, of wrap up questions, maybe Anna, you want to. Mm. Yeah. So one of them that is always fascinating is, um, 
you work a lot and of course you've learned a lot over the past 10 or 15 years in all of this so have you made any changes to your life based on what you've learned through your research mm, yes i have so i think some of the main things that i would do now um, are particularly around the active couch potato message i would be someone who probably would fall into the do my intense workout in a morning or evening and then sit at my desk all day so to combat that i've got a standing desk i generally try and go for a, a walk at lunchtime um, and to try and have walking meetings as well. So that would be one thing that I try and do. And I, I use my um, Garmin watch to, to record my steps throughout a day. And I'll always try and reach my 10,000 steps every day. So that's a really good thing for me. Um, secondly, I've tried to incorporate my exercise and activity in my commute. So I live an hour's train ride away from where I'm working at the minute. And um, there is no way you can cycle on the roads where I'm living in Sydney. It's just a nightmare. And so, for example, I've really tried to work out a way that I can try and get some activity in my commute. And so what I've done is I, can, I run to halfway along some kind of paths and roads and then I hop on the train. So half of my journey is active and the other half is sitting on a train. Um, and I just find that a really easy way of getting up my step count. Um, because it's not like interfering with the rest of my life. I can still go home and have tea or do other hobbies because I've got to get home somehow. Yeah. So that's um, one thing. Sec secondly, diet, I think, um, eating more whole grain foods. Um, breakfast, I, I was finding I was eating um, cereal and then being really hungry an hour later. So I fill up on, I try and have eggs in the morning. They keep me fuller for longer. Um and trying to reduce sugar sweetened drinks. I don't have, have them as much as possible. Um, I think the intermittent fasting message is, is really interesting. So fasting now and again to almost reset my body, kind of have a break and then start again. So even if it's just fasting once a month, once a week, whatever it is, I know everyone has different ways of doing it. I, f I found that to be helpful. Um, keeping an eye on my weight weekly is a good thing. I think it's very easy to gain pounds um without realizing it on a weekly basis so i just step hop on the scales once a week sunday night whenever it is and just maintain that so i know where i'm at in terms of my weight um and i think planning meals before you go food shopping that's an important thing so you don't just kind of grab at anything you want um but i think it's also important to enjoy treats um as well not to starve yourself of cake if it's someone's birthday enjoy the cake i think that's fine what's, I think your, what's your go-to treat go on you can oh do you know what i love an almond croissant i don't know why oh, but i just, just yeah and actually here in australia they love their banana bread toasted oh, with butter i really enjoy banana bread as well and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i think i think just following on from that i've seen the negative effects of being obsessed with this kind of trying to do everything possible to prevent your body from aging so there's of course we've got to keep our body weight down we've got to kind of be active and sleep well all of those things absolutely to prevent this accelerated aging but on the flip side i see people who are just so stressed and obsessed about doing anything and everything to stop their body's aging even though it's a natural thing and i think part of aging well is accepting that so 
yeah, I think that's important to to just highlight. Actually, on that on that with the insomnia clinic that that Hugh, one of the guests, runs, it's uh, it's the UK's biggest. He's found more and more people who are obsessed with sleeping well, and they're coming to the clinic not being able to mm. sleep because they're so obsessed with it because of yes. some of the books that have come out. So Matthew Walker's book, for example. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I I think he his point was that of course it helps a lot with educating people and people generally need to sleep better but mm. um there is also a problem if you overstress the importance of certain things because that can have the opposite effect and and stress is of course not good either so i think you're making a really good point aging is something mm. that happens to everyone and it's completely natural what we're discussing here is that accelerated aging that leads to diseases mm. that tend to hit us earlier at life and really yes. reducing that health span that's right. And I guess that links into the work that you're doing uh, with Mike and uh, and in Sydney. Mm. What is your view on the future within this area, lifestyle, medicine? Yeah, I think with the increase in um, genetic understanding more about a person's, you know, we can now get the whole genome-wide data for individuals. There's probably going to be more personalised medicine. Um, so looking at someone's genetics and how their environment interacts with that that's kind of a new area of research and um, i think like i mentioned earlier finding this kind of biomarker or signature of biomarkers which can predict your body age i think that's going to be something that increases with time and also just the increase awareness of the benefits of intermittent fasting i think eventually that's probably going to be utilized more in clinical practice to treat and manage these kind of chronic conditions and reduce this accelerated aging that we're seeing. Do, do you think then that the use of bio, biological age will become more mainstream? Yeah, I do. That's my prediction. I could be wrong, but just seeing where things are going and the ability to get someone's genome and and take loads of these measures. Yes, I do think that that's going to be the future. Yeah, I think we'd, we'd agree. We actually we had uh, dinner on Monday with the guy called Lee Hood. Mm -hmm. He ran a company called Arival. He was uh, he ran the Human Genome Project as well. Yeah. Uh, okay. The whole uh, the whole premise was this thing called scientific wellness, where mm -hmm. you're going to be able to use exactly as you say. There's going to be analytes that that help predict mm -hmm. along with genomic background. So, I, yes. I think I think you're right. My long way of saying I think you're right. <laughs> That's good. Yes. <laughs> good to know. But okay, so someone maybe as a final note, so someone who's been listening into this conversation and finds mm -hmm. a lot of these things really interesting and maybe want to learn a bit more. Do you have any resources you would recommend? Maybe websites or apps or just places to go to find more information? Yes. Um, I mean, firstly, people, I'm very happy to to receive emails. My email address. I don't know. Will there be a link? from you guys can you yes yeah we'll put that in the yeah. episode yeah. description yeah so yeah you can contact me on twitter as well it's sophie cassidy six um there's for people listening who may have type 2 diabetes and have heard the kind of the work on um reversal i would highly recommend if you just type in on google reversing diabetes newcastle university then Roy Taylor's put some fantastic resources, so the professor I was talking to, to you about, um, on there, so kind of recipes and really good advice on how you may go about reversing your diabetes. So that's really good. I, um, I think Medical News Today, which is a website, 
is a fantastic resource. So what it does is it takes um, uh, scientific articles, so research, and translates it into kind of really easy to read articles for the everyday person. Um, so it's a really good way of keeping up to date with current research and you can pick your topics. So for example, you can choose exercise, diet, aging, and it will send you on a weekly or daily basis kind of the, the most up-to-date research. So that's a really good tool. Um, yeah, I think that's probably what I've got to say for that. Sounds really yeah, no, it's perfect. that's really good. Hey, well, thanks, uh, thanks so much. It was uh, really fascinating. So, oh, great. Yeah. Thanks was for your the... time. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Will. Unfortunately, we have to let Sophie go now so that she can continue her important work. But I hope that you have found this conversation interesting and that you've picked up some actionable and useful tips. If you haven't already seen the BBC show How to Stay Young, I would highly recommend that you watch it. It's a great example of what is actually possible to achieve. And as you heard Sophie say, the strong reactions from the participants were all real. If you want to check out the additional resources that Sophie recommended, you'll find links in the episode description. Next up is Dr. Paul Wicks, a researcher and neuropsychologist who can help us better understand how to make use of our own health data. So if you haven't already done so, make sure that you subscribe to the What Does Good Look Like podcast so that you don't miss this or any other upcoming episodes. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com. Or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app, as well as leaving a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer.